you've got a Bible, you can start finding Philippians. We're going to cover the entirety of chapter two today. Uh, We started Philippians a couple of weeks ago. And last time we were in this text, we got to talk about the power of the gospel to form us. The gospel forms us. It doesn't just bring us into the Christian faith. It doesn't just bring us into a relationship with God. It also has power over time to shape us. And we talked about the gospel's formative power to take us out on mission, to take us down in humility and endurance and suffering, and to take us in to communion with the living God. Today, we're going to talk about the continuing work of gospel formation to make us a community that looks like Jesus in our humility and love for one another. As we open up this text today, it's funny, I've been thinking about my house in relation to this text. Uh, my wife and I were house hunting 15 years ago. Our family was growing. We needed a place with a bit more room, wanted to be in the core of the city to finish the race here in OKC and love the city well. And we were going from house to house looking and we just couldn't find anything. And then we went to this home in Shepherd neighborhood. And the outside of this house had great structure. It's a great street, beautiful oak tree. And we walked into that home and it had been redecorated by a sweet older couple in their 70s, in the 70s. And and it was like like the lowlights of every terrible thing that people did to homes in the 70s. It was not only shag carpeting, but somehow they had laid red AstroTurf in the kitchen, right? Because I don't know, that's a good idea, right? Red AstroTurf in the kitchen, Um, really bizarre curtains. They had flecks of smoked glass on the ceiling because that's fancy, right? And we walked into that home and my initial reaction was, we cannot live here anywhere but here. And I was really surprised that my wife instantly was like, no, man, this is where I want to live. And it wasn't because she has bad taste. It was actually because she had the ability to actually see the health of the structure, It was a beautiful structure. It was a beautiful foundation and a beautiful structure in that home and hardwood floors underneath the shag carpeting. There was something elegant about the structure and sturdy about the structure. Now I say that, I say that because the epistle that we're in today is about structure. It's about foundations. It's about apostolic reality in which the apostle Paul wants to make sure that the church in Philippi and the church today by God's grace has the foundations and the structure that we need to be a healthy family. And what happens in the church throughout different ages is the people of God tend to, we tend to build on the foundation, which is Jesus. And we tend to build on that foundation at different times, some things that look more like the culture than they look like the gospel. Right now in our particular cultural moment, especially in the Midwest, especially in a part of the world where church has been for many people a hobby without a lot of gospel transformation, we tend to bring things from the culture into the church. We tend to decorate in the church, if you will, and build culture in the church, if you will, some things that are incongruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take consumerism from the culture and we transfer that into the church. And I don't want to say this as a critique of other churches because thanks be to God, I don't have to give an account to Jesus for other churches in our city. But I say that to caution us about our church that many times the consumerism that we live in, which puts us first, because we're Americans and by gosh, the consumer, the customer is always right. 
What starts to happen in our relationship with the local church is we start to act like the church is simply a marketplace for the exchange of goods and services that we basically show up to have our felt needs met. Don't get me wrong. There are needs that we have in our lives that Jesus wants to meet in the local church. But what happens is the consumerism of our culture and the individualism of our culture causes us to approach church more like Walmart than the family of the living God in which God actually wants you to be shaped by the gospel to give your lives away. The church of Jesus Christ is not about entertainment. It's not about marketing. It's not about listing all the things that you think would make for a cool church and then finding a cool church. The church of Jesus Christ is not about the latest trend or the latest fad or the coolest speaker or the greatest worship band or the perfect facility. The church of Jesus Christ is about the foundation of Jesus and building on the foundation of Jesus lives that are being shaped and fit together by the grace of God so that we could pour out our lives to the glory of God to reflect Jesus in his finished work. And the apostle Paul loves these Philippians so much. He loves them so much. He's like a spiritual dad that loves them and he's proud of them. And he's really concerned that their foundations are healthy and they don't build on those foundations, things that are incongruent with the gospel. So today, this is a beautiful text because in, in some ways it's really mysterious and profound and in other ways it's just a gospel handoff right up the middle. So here we go, Philippians chapter two, we're gonna read a little and talk about it. Here's what the apostle Paul says by God's grace to the Philippians and to us, starting in verse one. So if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ Jesus, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. What Paul is saying in this text is that the church of Jesus built on the foundation of Christ and his sacrificial life and death, the church of Jesus is to be a new creation communion, a new creation communion. Let me try to unpack that for you. It was our pride and our selfishness that's brought the world to the brink of destruction. In our pride, human beings, mankind, have substituted ourselves for God. We've decided that we wanted to sit on the throne of our lives and we wanted to build our own kingdoms. In pride and in arrogance, we've tried to murder and replace the living God, our creator. And in our pride and in our arrogance, we look down on others and we fight and fend for number one at all cost. And what's happened as a result of our pride, as the early church father said, was the mother of all sins. In our pride and in our arrogance, we've actually brought destruction and death into planet earth, decay and sin into planet earth. And what the apostle Paul is saying in this text is that the church of Jesus 
is to be this foretaste here and now of the finished work of recreation that Jesus is doing and will do. Jesus came to undo the work of the enemy. Jesus came to address sin and to address death. And what Paul is writing to these Philippian Christians is that the way that they love each other, the kind of humility that's to mark their lives, the kind of deference to one another in love, honoring others, not only looking out for their own interests, but also the interests of their neighbors, that humility and that love is to be in some ways the base note that you hear played when you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's to be this base note that sets the tone for the church because it's a glimpse of what's coming in Jesus as he makes all things new and he does away with pride and arrogance and he leads us into a beautiful new creation where there's life and there's beauty and all things are made whole. So he writes to these Philippians, he says, listen, you're not to do anything from selfish ambition. You're not to regard your interests as more important than your neighbor. You're not to look out for number one. You're not to be a consumer in the local church that evaluates everything through the lens of your personal preference. You're to be rooted and grounded in Jesus in such a way that the number one that you actually start looking out for is your neighbor. And Paul wants this so deeply for these Philippian Christians. And I want this so deeply for you and for me that we would be a community of humility and a community of love, not a community of individualistic consumers that simply attend a Sunday morning show when we see fit, but instead people that are learning by God's grace to pour out our lives for one another in love and in service. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Because I'm selfish and so are you. And if you don't believe that human beings are selfish people, just hang out with any two-year-old or three-year-old for 15 minutes, right? I remember multiple times my children biting other kids. Like, why did you bite that little boy? Well, he had what I wanted. Yeah, that's a pretty good portrayal of human nature. We're selfish at the core. We carry sin inside of us. We carry pride inside of us. We're judgmental. We're quick to give everybody the opposite of the benefit of the doubt, So how do we grow in this kind of gospel humility? How do we really love each other as the primary mark of the culture of the church of Jesus Christ? Well, we have to realize that you don't just work yourself up into humility. Humility and service is built on Jesus. The most humble person that's ever lived, the greatest servant that's ever lived, the one that came to wash your feet and to die in your place is Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. I love that. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Meaning there's a present reality that we have access to in Jesus. That's a reality that's rooted and grounded in humble service and love for others. Now in verse six, he's gonna unpack the gospel in a way that's deep and beautiful And I want this to hit our hearts. My prayers as I read these verses, that something would happen inside of you, that you would see Jesus more clearly, perhaps than you've ever seen him. Verse six, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The theological beauty in this. And when I say theological beauty, I don't just mean intellectual facts that you can memorize to get puffed up with pride. What I mean is, the revelation of who God is in these verses is some of the most powerful, beautiful things that you could ever put together with human words. What the apostle Paul is saying is that the son of God, equal with the father, we believe in this beautiful thing called the Trinity, that our God is not a solitary, lonely God, but he's always existed in perfect communion. One God in three persons. It's a mystery And that one God who's always existed in three persons is not a grasping God like the Greek gods. He's not a God that clings to his dignity like all the Roman gods. He's not a God that exists to take. The triune God that we worship has always existed as a fountain of life that delights in pouring himself out because there's no end of who he is. He's a giving God. And what happens in the incarnation when the son of God takes on flesh and what happens in the way that Jesus chose to live a life of servanthood, even slavery, this text points to the way in which Jesus came to be poor. He humbled himself. He went through all the temptations that human beings face and all the indignities that human bodies have to go through. And not only did he take on flesh, but he humbled himself, this says, even to the point of death and death on a cross. In our culture, crosses are used as a symbol of the faith, right? We wear beautiful crosses, In their culture in the first century, the cross was the most shameful thing that you could possibly mention. You didn't talk about crucifixion in polite company. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst people. Crucifixion was an agonizing way to die, but it was also a shameful way to die. To be stripped naked, to lose control of your bodily functions, to be lifted up and to suffer and to bleed in front of people. It was awful. What Jesus does in the cross And throughout his life is he doesn't come to be served. He comes to serve. This emptying of himself doesn't mean that he stops being God. He doesn't empty himself by becoming less divine. He empties himself by pouring out his life in service to his enemies. And the father highly exalts Jesus for this humility and this servanthood because Jesus in the cross fully and completely displays the character of our triune God. If you want to know what God's like, you just look at the cross. Because in the cross, you see that God is a fountain of love. That God loves to pour out. He loves to give. We serve a God that's willing to empty himself for the blessing and benefit of others. And Jesus in some people's theology, stands between us and a father who wants to 
crush us and who doesn't really want our redemption. And Jesus intervenes to get the father off of our back. But in Pauline theology, Jesus does atone for our sins. He does take the wrath of God against sin, but he's partnering with the father because the father loves to give and the son loves to give and the spirit loves to give. And in the cross, you see the climax of history in which this God who loves to empty himself empties himself so fully that he's willing to actually bleed out in your place and in my place to pay for our sins. And friends, listen, That's the center of the church. That's the foundation of the church. That's the purpose of the church. Paul says to his friends in Philippi, man, you're to live a life of emptying yourself for others. Now that emptying of yourself for others doesn't mean that you lose a sense of self. Jesus didn't lose a sense of self. It doesn't mean that you stop being a person Christian, Christian theology is not the same as Buddhist theology. We're not moving towards a nothingness where you become less yourself. The kind of emptying that God wants his people to experience is this Christ formed and Christ reflecting, pouring out of our lives for the blessing and benefit of others, because that's what God's done for us. God loves you so much. I don't know how many more years I get to pastor in this church. I hope God gives me a long life and I pray that God lets me be in this church for the rest of my life. My one prayer, my biggest prayer is that Christ would be formed in us so that we would know the love of God in Christ and just how costly it is, just how beautiful it is, just how humble it is. And that that love would shape us and form us to be a people that are willing to follow our master in pouring out our lives for others. That's what it means to be a Christian. So Paul says to his friends in Philippi that they're to be this new creation community instead of formed by pride and selfishness, they're to have this gospel humility. And the source of that gospel humility is Jesus. And then he tells them, And this is good news because it's really hard to walk in that kind of humility. It's really difficult to pour our lives out. He tells them that they actually have to work this out together with one another and with God. Look what happens in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to these words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is really helpful. These two verses are really beautiful. Here's what the apostle Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, this Christ formation project, helping you and me to grow, to be like Jesus individually and together, to be more humble like Jesus, to be more loving like Jesus, to be servants like Jesus, to be pure like Jesus. This Christ formation project requires an intentionality that feels like work. And that work has to be girded. It has to be held up with what he calls fear and trembling. Another way to put that would be awe and wonder. The more you have awe and wonder, look what God did for me. It's crazy. Look at the love of God, the humility of God. I hated Jesus and Jesus loved me. I didn't want the father and the father chose me. The more you have awe and wonder, the more that awe and wonder is fuel to work hard 
that Christ would be formed in you. Here's what he's saying in another way. Um, you're not going to slip and fall into Christ likeness. You're just not. You're, you're not going to be lazy and unintentional about pursuing Jesus and wake up in 12 months and be like, man, I'm accidentally way more sanctified. I love Jesus more. I used to love money more than Jesus. Now I love Jesus more than money. How did that happen? I don't know. Maybe it was that vacation. No, here's what he's saying. There's labor we need to put into our sanctification. We need to seek Jesus. We need to pursue him. We need to posture ourselves to know him, to have that awe and wonder. One of the things that's difficult in pastoring in our day and age, in our city, is the lack of intentionality for our spiritual formation. And I love you guys to death. You know that. You know I love you. You've seen me weep in front of you because I love you so much. But it's really, it's really difficult to pastor in a cultural moment where people claim to be followers of Jesus, but there's zero working out our salvation with fear and trembling as evidenced by a lack of time in the word with Jesus, a lack of prayer. I love you guys so much. But one of the most difficult things is that as we gather on the Lord's day, this is about us being formed, right? Our affections and desires being shaped in our liturgy by the power of the Holy Spirit through preaching and teaching and sacraments. And, and there's a vast majority of you that you're here about once or twice a month. God bless you. What Paul is saying to the Philippians, what, what we need to take to heart is like, nobody's going to accidentally become more like Jesus. We got to seek him. We got to seek him together. We got to seek him individually through word and prayer, and through sac- the sacrament of the Lord's table and through being here as we gather together. We got to actually be intentional about this. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. He tells them, hey guys, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning that's your effort, my effort. Seek Jesus, chase Jesus, do it with labor, be willing to sweat to get close to Jesus, do whatever it takes to be intentional about Jesus. But then he also reminds them of his beautiful theology of grace. He says, for it's God who's working in you to will and do his good pleasure. I love that. It's so awesome. He's saying, hey guys, work really hard at your spiritual formation, seek Jesus. Hey, also it's because God's working in you to create the character and the affections and the beauty of Jesus. God's working, so work really hard. And what this means, friends, is like, hey, if you have any desire to seek Jesus, that's God working in you. If there's any conviction about your sin, that's God working in you. If there's any moment in this day together where you're like, oh, wow, I love Jesus more than I used to. That's God working in you. If there's more hunger and thirst to get close to Jesus and you wanna seek him, you feel drawn to his word, that's God working in you. The good news is, yes, we're supposed to work. Spiritual formation is slow and it takes intentionality, but here's what's beautiful. The work that's the most powerful is the work of God. And he guarantees that he's working in you to form Jesus. He's committed to the project of making us look like his son. And that's fantastic news. Now, the the fourth thing he mentions is that this community of humility that's built on Jesus and this spiritual formation that we're supposed to be intense about, passionate about, is not just for you and me. It's actually for the whole world. It's for the whole world. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I love this. Paul loves non-Christians. He loves them so much. Paul's willing to travel over oceans to get to non-Christians. He's willing to take dirty back roads to get to non-Christians. He loves people that are far from God because he knows God loves people that are far from God. And what Paul is saying is this work to become more like Jesus, to grow in being more loving, to grow in being more humble, to grow in pouring our lives out for one another. This is one of the ways that we make Jesus known in our city. He wants the light of Jesus to shine through the church as we grow in loving each other, as as God delivers us from individualism, not from being individuals, but from individualism, that isolation, that selfishness, as he rescues us from consumerism, as he connects us and we start loving each other, what starts to happen, man, is the world sees the light of Jesus in the church as we love each other, as we meet needs, as we bear burdens. This is why we do community groups. Community groups are not some random program where we weren't like, hey, you know what we need? More work to do. Let's build community groups. Community groups are just a laboratory. They're a laboratory for us to work together that Christ would be formed so that the light of Jesus would shine in our city. And and you know what's good about community groups? You'll get offended in them. You know what else is good? You'll be around weird people like you. You know what else is good? You get really frustrated by people. Why is all that good? Because it's easy to love people when there's nothing that's frustrating you. It's easy to walk in unity with each other when there's no potential for division. But in diversity, as we love each other and fight for each other, as you offend me and I offend you, but we stay in relationship. As I have needs, they're going to be costly for you to meet. And you step in and meet those needs. What happens is Christ is being formed and the light of Jesus starts shining in OKC that people could look at young men honoring young women instead of objectifying them. Say, man, that's different. People using money to bless others and advance the kingdom of God instead of consuming it all on themselves. People look at that and they think, that's weird. People that are willing to give of their time and their talent and their treasure for the blessing and benefit of others, what happens? The light of Jesus starts shining. We want to tell people that don't know Jesus the good news of Christ, but listen, it's our love in some real ways that makes that message believable in OKC. We don't want to tell them about the love of God in Christ and that message not line up with the way that we know each other and honor each other and fight for each other. We want to tell them, but we also want the good news of the gospel to make us a more loving people. So Jesus's light shines. Paul is going to close this chapter by giving some examples of this servant hearted Jesus shining humility and service. And Paul's not afraid to point out his example. He tells us in verse 17, that even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. 
Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what he's saying. Um, Jesus has captured me and I want to be poured out for you guys. I love you. Paul's saying, I want to give my life away for you. I want to endure suffering for you and hardship for you. And I want to give my life to you, Philippians, because Jesus gave his life for me. Then he mentions Timothy, who is one of Paul's right-hand guys. Look what he says about Timothy in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Here's what he's saying. Jesus has formed Timothy to pour his life out. Everybody else is about their own interest. They're trying to use ministry to get something and they want to take from you. But Timothy's been formed by Jesus to want to actually care for your interests, Philippians. Timothy wants to pour out his life for you. And then he mentions this guy who I I predict will be the hot baby name for 2019, Epaphroditus, right? That's a killer baby name, Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. For I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and he's been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Who's this Epaphroditus? Well, Epaphroditus was a member of the church of Philippi and Paul was in jail. And when you were locked up in a Roman jail, you had to actually pay for your own necessities. You had to buy your own food. You had to buy your own clothing. And these Philippians love Paul and they hear that he's in jail. And so they send Epaphroditus with money so that Paul's needs would be met. What most likely happened is on the long journey from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus got really sick. And instead of tapping out of the journey and returning to Philippi with the money, Epaphroditus risked his life so that he could be poured out for the blessing and benefit of the apostle Paul. And Paul is saying, hey, I want to be poured out for you. Timothy wants to be poured out for you. Epaphroditus wants to be poured out for you. Why is he giving these examples? Because that's what happens when Christ is formed in his church. People start giving their lives away to the mission of Jesus for the blessing and benefit of one another. That's what gospel humility, that's what gospel service will look like. Men, now, as we close, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We need to grow into this. We need to be more intense about seeking Jesus. We need to be more passionate about being formed to look like Jesus. We need to be more committed to community together. We need to be more committed to the Lord's day and to meeting together house to house in community groups. We need more commitment. We need to fight for that. But take heart because God's working and he's gonna finish the good work he began in you. We're to work, but don't worry, he's working. He's working.